0: A song we listen to every January 1st, to welcome the new and salute the old. Perfect for our show this week, as we continue in our review of the top science stories of 2022. Dave Robinson here, and you are listening to Bench Talk, The Year in Science, Part 2 Well, we started our list of top science stories of the year on our last episode, so check out our show of January 16th, 2023 for that. So let's get to covering more top stories of 2022. We've got goldfish that can drive, how social media affects our attitudes about life, and you might be surprised about those results. There's a story about the effect of three different pandemics on the income gap between rich and poor, and how COVID-19 is different than both the bubonic plague and cholera. Then there's a story about how to make school spending more effective, and whether or not pre-kindergarten programs are truly worthwhile. Finally, Professor Scott Miller fills us in on what we can see in the night sky in February. Oh boy, there's a comet this month that won't visit again for another 50,000 years. We'll be able to see three planets, Mars, Venus, and Jupiter, two of which will form a conjunction this month, plus the Orion Nebula. Wow. And you'll also get to hear what a black hole actually sounds like. So, let's get started. Odd Animal Behaviors there are some unusual animal behaviors that were discovered this year. For instance, there's the fox that was observed catching fish. That makes fox only the second member of the canidae that's the family made up of dog-like carnivores, that can collect fish to eat. Wolves are the only other member of this family that can go collect its own fish meal. Also this year, it was found that there's a salamander that lives in the Redwood Forest of Northern California that can fly through the air like a flying squirrel does. Well, sort of like it. Because the difference between these salamanders and those flying squirrels, and by the way, they both live in the Redwood Forest, these salamanders don't have any physical adaptations that allows them to glide through the air. They don't have that flap of skin between their legs. They just are really good at gliding through the air. Watch out next time you're in that forest. Researchers studied the cleaning action of underwater sponges this year. Now, sponges are filter feeders, which means that their pores regularly get sort of clogged up with stuff that's in the water. These ocean particles need to get eliminated, and the sponge does that by suspending it in sort of a mucus that is then expelled from the sponge with a slow-motion sneeze. So it's sort of like when we have a runny nose to get rid of stuff that's in our nose. A sponge is making this mucus that it sneezes out of the body. Now, the sneeze does take about a half hour to occur, But there are some cool time-lapse movies on the web if you want to check that out. This is pretty amazing that such a simple animal, probably the most ancient animal still living on Earth, is capable of really a pretty complex behavior. And then last January, it was announced that researchers had taught goldfish how to drive. The goldfish were in these aquariums that had wheels on them and there was a camera overhead that detected the direction that the fish was swimming and then the camera would send signals to the aquarium wheels to move in the direction that the goldfish appeared to want to go it took 10 days to fully train the fish to drive towards specific targets and to be able to drive around obstacles This kind of work might help researchers understand how fish and other animals navigate their environment. There's a few cool videos of it on the web, so check that out if you want. One video is of a goldfish driving its aquarium down the street in what seemed like a very deliberate fashion. That's the stuff of a nightmare we can all share. Topic number five, psychology. There were two papers on the effect of screen time on mental health. The first was a meta-analysis by psychologists suggesting that exposure to screen time, including smartphones and social media, is not linked to mental health issues in adults or children. The researchers analyzed 37 data sets from 33 separate studies published between 2015 and 2019. They found no evidence that screen media contributes to suicidal thoughts or ideas or other negative mental health outcomes. And this result was not affected by the participants' age or ethnicity. But a second paper that I wanted to mention found a distinction between whether or not the social media user was taking an active role or a passive role during their time on social media. Here, in studies done with participants in the United States, researchers found that heavy social media use across 11 different media platforms was associated with less social connection, lower well-being, and higher stress if the user was consistently passive, like viewing social media but not regularly posting or interacting through that platform. So perhaps social media is not the worst thing for ourselves or for our children, but apparently it's better if we are actively participating in it rather than just playing the role of a voyeur. Number six, economics. How about this story? The effect of pandemics on wealth gaps. It's being reported in numerous channels that the COVID-19 pandemic has significantly widened wealth and income disparities around the world. 99% of the world's population saw a drop in their annual income since the pandemic started, but the world's 10 richest men have doubled their fortunes. And this was even before the war in Ukraine. Average CEO pay in the U.S. went up by 1.9 million dollars From 2019 to 2020, while the median pay of low wage earners at the 100 largest companies in the US only went up by $58. And Nature magazine reported in June of 2022 that while the poorest 40% of the world experienced about a 7% lower income than what was projected before the pandemic, the richest 20% of the world. Only saw a 2.5% drop. So poorer populations suffered higher rates of infection during this current pandemic, and workers in lower paying jobs were the most impacted by widespread shutdowns. But it turns out not all pandemics have had the same effect. In a paper that was published in 2022, an economist looked at the history of pandemics stretching all the way back to medieval times. For instance, he looked at the bubonic plague. Now, the bubonic plague occurred in the mid-1300s and caused what's commonly called the Black Death and took the lives of possibly even half of the population in Europe. Now, he reported that mortality rates and the response by wealthy elites actually reduced the gap between rich and poor during the time of the plague. Rich and poor death rates were more equivalent during the bubonic plague, and so there was an enormous loss of labor. This decline in the availability of laborers made each one that was still alive much more valuable, so the workers that were left could earn even more compensation. Plus, the wealthy tended to want to sell off some of their land and their property, because their families were so much smaller. So many people in their family had died. This caused a glut on the market, and land prices dropped. So, the divide between rich and poor actually shrank during the Bubonic Plague. But then the cholera epidemic was different. Cholera hit in the mid-1800s, And it was the lower-income populations that were most hurt by that pandemic. But mathematically, the level of inequality between the poor and the wealthy leveled out some simply because there weren't as many poor people anymore. And that probably drove up wages to a higher level, too. And then once governments became aware of what was really causing the spread of cholera, and that was poor sewage treatment and unclean water supplies, the government acted to improve those infrastructures, and that provided for more healthy living for those people who were still left. So eventually the population had healthier and safer living conditions, and the general rule of thumb is that greater health equality leads to greater income equality. So perhaps this provides a model on how we can respond to our current pandemic? The author concluded by stating, quote, The lessons from previous pandemics, especially cholera in the 19th century, offer hope for how public policy responses can have a meaningful impact on reducing inequality over the long run, unquote. Topic number seven, education. There's this topic of school spending. Does spending more for public schools help? It's important because the U.S. has dramatically increased its funding for public schools over the last four decades. Real per-pupil expenditures have nearly doubled since 1980. One economist's analysis of public schools in Wisconsin found that when school budgets increased, allocation choices made a big difference in student outcomes. In other words, how are you going to use that money? He found that additional spending on operations like teacher salaries and support services had a positive effect on student test scores, dropout rates, and post-secondary enrollment. But extra capital expenditures on things like new buildings and renovations seem to have had very little impact. So the conclusion was that it's worthwhile to help teachers, but just improving the campus facilities might not be all that helpful. Do pre-kindergarten programs truly improve student achievement? According to a study published in the journal Developmental Psychology in 2022, children in Tennessee who attended a state-funded pre-kindergarten program were doing worse by the end of sixth grade compared to peers who did not attend a pre-K program. Whoa, not what you'd expect. The way this was done was researchers randomly assigned 2,990 children, almost 3,000 kids, from low-income families who lived in Tennessee and they all attended a pre-K program sometime in 2009 or 2010 and then they tracked them until the sixth grade and compared them to children in a similar situation but who had not attended a pre-K program. State education records show that at the end of their first year The children who went to pre-K scored higher on school readiness, but by third grade, the pre-K children had lower math and science test scores than the control group. Moreover, by the end of the sixth grade, the pre-K children were doing even worse, with lower math, science, and reading scores. They were also more likely to be enrolled in special education programs, And were more likely to be suspended for behavioral issues. So these results are pretty surprising, but it appears that it might have something to do with the type of lessons being taught in the pre-k classes and not just whether they took pre-k or not. The authors of this study admit that, and then other researchers have chimed in about this too. It turns out in Tennessee, Many pre-K classes involve large group activities where children are learning pretty passively. The teachers are doing most of the talking. The problem with this is that other researchers have reported negative correlations between large group activities and student gains in language, math, and executive function. What seems to work better is when the learning is active, engaging, meaningful, iterative, meaning there's repetition, socially interactive, and joyful. When children have fun, they learn more effectively. And if you think about it, it makes sense. And it might not be a bad idea to help preschoolers think of school as enjoyable rather than as a duty. Secondly, it appears that it might not really be that helpful to emphasize the basic skills in pre-kindergarten, like reading and writing. Apparently, these skills are mastered very quickly in the first and second grades, regardless of whether or not the student attended pre-K. One critique of this paper said, quote, together, attention, fine motor skills, language skills, and general knowledge are much stronger overall predictors of later math, reading, and science scores than early math and reading scores alone, They argue that there needs to be more investment at the pre-kindergarten level in a suite of skills that include collaboration, like building relationships, communication, content, that's reading, math, and approaches to learning, critical thinking, creative innovation, like curiosity and exploration, and confidence, which is like learning from failure and learning how to persevere. This is called the six C's in education. The six C's are collaboration, communication, content, critical thinking, creativity, and confidence. Without this in the early years, It's thought that children will not really be prepared for formal school. It's believed that children who learn these foundational 6C skills will also be prepared for learning later in life. It all suggests that a well-curated classroom in which students are exposed to books, blocks, and puzzles, but in which guided play is supported, will best lead to successful outcomes. On the other hand, researchers point out that simply letting kids play freely doesn't support strong outcomes for children either. There needs to be guided direction. So the teacher plays an important role. So the authors of that original study found that pre-kindergarten programs in Tennessee were not helping student learning or success in the long run. But they do conclude, quote, if the programs we have created do not produce the desired effects, the findings themselves should not be dismissed simply because they were unanticipated and unwelcome. Rather, they should stimulate creative research into both policies and practices. Unquote. Oh, what's that eerie sound? That's the sound of a black hole that was recorded by NASA last year. And we're playing it as an introduction to Scott Miller's upcoming story on what we can see in the night sky in the month of February. Now, it's often said that there are no sounds in outer space, since it is a vacuum. But it turns out that there are enough gases around the Perseus galaxy cluster that those gases could interact with energy to actually produce a vibration, which can be interpreted as a sound. Now, the Perseus cluster is a giant cloud of gas. It's about 250 million light-years away. And it does contain a black hole that produces X-rays, which interact with the gases in the galaxy cluster, thus producing a sound wave. And the sound isn't really audible to the human ear, but NASA scientists have sped up the sound waves by 57 octaves so that we actually can hear it. This process is called sonification. So let's hear again to that black hole that's been sonified, and then go directly to Scott, who will tell us some of the things we can see in the night sky this month.
1: February brings us farther from the date of shortest daylight back in late December, which happens to be the astronomical beginning of winter, and closer to the first day of spring, astronomically around the 20th of March. That means that we are gaining a bit more daylight, and conversely a bit less night, as we slowly trudge toward summer. For those of us interested in seeing the night sky, that means we have to wait a bit longer until darkness comes. Still, Getting dinner out of the way and heading out at dusk this month, I can search to see what discoveries can be made. The talk of the astronomical town is Comet C-2022-E3-ZTF. This comet was first spied in March of 2022. The ZTF attached to its name means it was discovered by the Zuki Transient Facility. Its orbit implies it hasn't been in this part of the solar system in some 50,000 years. It rounded the sun back in January and will be closest to Earth on February 1st. It is said to be naked eye comet, but dark skies are needed to make this more of a reality. Currently located in the northern sky between the nose star of Ursa Major the Big Bear and Camelopardus the Giraffe, it will make its way past some more noticeable markers in the sky as the month continues. Unfortunately, it will be getting farther from us, and these close passages may be binocular or telescopic in nature, though comets are hard to predict in terms of brightness. By February 5th, it should be near the star Capella in Auriga the Charioteer. Pentagon in shape, Capella is its brightest star. Mars will be near it on the evenings of the 10th and the 11th. Aldebaran and the comet should be together on Valentine's Day, February 14th. It will end the month near Orion the Hunter, specifically just beyond an outstretched arm away from Bellatrex to his shield. Some of this is going to require the use of a good star map or an app on a phone because some of these constellations or their parts are not overly obvious. But since this won't be around for another 50,000 years, might need to make that effort. While out common hunting, planets are aplenty. If one is facing the western sky just around seven or so as darkness is falling, Venus may be glimpsed quite close to the horizon. Higher up in the west is Jupiter. These are the two brightest planets in our skies. As February continues, these two will draw closer and closer, Jupiter getting closer to the horizon, Venus moving away from it. They will be in a conjunction, a close pairing of planets, by month's end and into March. The Moon will join the ever-closing pair the nights of February 21st and 22nd. That leaves Mars as the other visible planet. Mars is located in the area of the Horns of Taurus the Bull. Now is a good time to compare its brightness to the brightest star Taurus called Aldebaran. Aldebaran is the fiery eye of Taurus. The Moon will be close to Mars by the 27th, just west of it and the 28th, just east of it. The moon will be in its first quarter phase, and of course the comet will not be too far away either, so it may prove an issue for finding it, though Mars should be still easy to find. As for constellations, high up in the southeast is the pattern of stars known as Orion the Hunter. I have mentioned Orion in previous broadcasts, but as it is the dominant winter constellation, I will take the time to connect its stars to the figure making up the constellation. Three close stars forming a straight line catch people's eyes, as this is kind of rare when one sees randomly scattered stars across the night sky. These three stars are the belt stars, marking the waist of Orion. As darkness continues to come on, one might see what appear to be three more stars just south of the belt. This marks a sword that Orion carries there. From there, two bright stars stand out. North of the belt is a reddish-colored star called Betelgeuse. The star and a dimmer one west of it, called Bellatrex, mark the shoulders of this giant hunter. A dim group of three stars about midway between these two and above a line connecting the two mark his head. South of the belt is another bright star, Rigel. It is sort of bluish-white in appearance. It can be thought of as the left knee of the giant, assuming, that is, that Orion is facing us. East of Rigel is the dimmer star, Saiph which is located below the belt stars on the same side as Betelgeuse. One can picture this as another knee. I mentioned the three stars that mark the sword tucked in the belt of Orion, or perhaps sheathed in a scabbard. But one of those stars is not a star at all. The middle star is a huge gas cloud known as the Orion Nebula. It is the birthplace of new stars. A pair of binoculars, perhaps 10 by 50s can reveal its gassiness. A telescope may reveal why the gas glows. There is a set of four stars near the center of the cloud called the trapezium. Those four young, hot stars are giving off so much light, predominantly in ultraviolet because of their temperatures, that it causes the surrounding gas to glow like a neon sign. As I have mentioned in past broadcasts, finding Orion gives one the chance to find other constellations. The three stars marking the belt can be used to draw a line extending to Aldebaran in Taurus the bull. The face of the bull is a V-shaped pattern of stars known as the Hyades star cluster. West of the cluster is a tighter grouping of stars known as the Pleiades, sometimes called the Seven Sisters. To the unaided eye, a count will reveal six easily seen stars, while binoculars and telescopes reveal lots more. Returning to the belt stars of Orion and heading along them off in the opposite direction from Aldebaran, one is led to Sirius, the brightest star in our night sky. Sirius is part of the constellation Canis Major the Big Dog. Sirius marks one corner of a near rectangle stars that extend toward the southeastern horizon to make up most of its body and front and back legs. A good star map can help to complete the dog. A line through the shoulder stars from the right to left, or Bellatrex to Betelgeuse, leads to Procyon. This star and a different one a bit higher up along a line connecting Canis Major and Orion are what make up constellation Canis Minor, the small dog. One last use of Orion to find a constellation involves a line from Rigel, the left knee of Orion, on up through Betelgeuse, his right shoulder, and beyond. That line nearly splits two stars of the same brightness, Castor and Pollux, the stars marking the heads of Gemini, the twins. Lines of stars headed back in the direction of Orion finish off the bodies of these twins. So February may be the shortest month of the year, but it holds more than a couple of interesting things to see. All one needs is the availability of clear skies, and the willingness to get outside away from the technology that distracts us. And, of course, face those chilly temperatures.
0: Whoa, we've run out of time. Thanks to Scott Miller for that story, and thank you for tuning in to Bench Talk, the year in science. See you next week!